News and views. Second Shinnecock billboard up and running. The Shinnecock Indian Nation completed on February 11th construction of its second electronic billboard on the side of Sunrise Highway in Hampton Bays. Completion of the new billboard, which the tribe says will bring in advertising revenue to pay for community programs, comes after the New York State Department of Transportation, DOT, issued a stop work order on the project, which has been the subject of litigation since the bill first billboard was built in 2019. The DOT lacks authority over nation lands, the Shinnecock has said, of why it was refusing to stop construction on the billboard. A DOT spokesman had responded that the billboards are jeopardizing eligibility for federal funding to maintain and renew this section of the highway. The first billboard was erected on the eastbound side of Route 27, and the second one is on the westbound side. Where does this continue? Wow. Okay, so it just ends there? Feels like at least three more sentences are missing. Oh, what else? A trip to New York City. Lobsters, horses, Walmart, Wendy's, Moderna, and potato chips. By Dan Ratner. For a year now, my wife and I have felt it too risky to go out of the house here in East Hampton very often. During this year, two more of our grandchildren were born. We have, at the request of our seven grown children who want us safe, seen these new children only briefly, masks up, for a few minutes at a time and mostly outdoors. Uh, but you know the story. You have your own. Mm, no, that's a strange assumption. Um, blah, 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 blah. I was first brought out from the city to the Hamptons in the 50s and met lots of local people here who had never in their whole lives been to New York City. I was astonished by this. Saw no reason to, they told me. Their parents had never been to the city either. Now I expected that along the busy drive to the city, I'd reacquaint myself with the 21st century, uh, <laughs> which, when you think about it, have caused many of the current problems on the planet. I don't know if you can attribute a city as, like, causing problems. Like, it's more of a global issue. Anyway, okay, moving on. Malibu or Montauk. This 13.7 million modern home offers 180 degree ocean views. Perched 125 feet above the Atlantic Ocean and with a clean modern design and rooftop deck, the home at 14 Maple Street in Montauk may leave you asking, am I in Malibu or Montauk? Ten Books for Black History Month and Beyond Ambitious Girl by Nina Harris Don't Touch My Hair by Sherry Miller 
Surely Chrisholm is a verb. Cocoa tea and honey paperback. Hedges. Oh no, behind the hedges. Hamptons real estate and lifestyle. Step behind. Advertisements, advertisements, advertisements. Parish Art Museum welcomes new director. Uh, Kelly Taxter, Taxter, whose career spans curating in galleries and museums, uh, assumes the position on March 22nd. Dan's papers spoke with Taxter about her background. How did the parish position come about? I was re recommended to the search firm. Uh, talk about your history as a museum curator and gallerist. I received my MA in 2003 from the Center for Curatorial Studies at Bard College, intending to go into museum work. However, I found that there weren't any jobs in New York City, amen, where I was committed to living. Uh, so, directly after graduating, I opened my gallery, Taxter and Spengemon, with Pascal Spengemon, in the front room of my apartment on West 22nd Street, between 10th and 11th Avenues in Chelsea. Where? What? Where is that? 10th and 11th, West 22nd? Front room? Hmm. Over our nine-year run, we moved and expanded four times. When the gallery closed, I was ready to step away from commercial galleries and meet the challenges of institutional work. I eventually landed at the Jewish Museum. This week's cover artist, Jane Hartley. Jane Hartley has a background in both graphic design and fine art. She studied at the Schuller School of Fine Arts in Baltimore and currently lives on St. Simmons Island, Georgia. Boring. Out and about on the East End. Friday. Oh, Barrel Hill Hike. I guess that's already passed. What day is it? The 25th? Trivia Thursday. Thursday, February 25th. Put your thinking cap on and join Greenport Harbor Brewing Company for trivia and beer at their Peconic location. Uh, Beconic Land Trust Book Club. Uh, that's tonight. I could maybe join. The Beconic Land Trust is starting a virtual book club beginning this Thursday. They will be discussing Bringing Nature Home, How You Can Sustain Wildlife with Native Plants by Douglas Tallamy. 
Douglas Tallamy, I think, wrote an article that we had to read as part of the New York Botanical Garden birdwatching Zoom class that I took last winter uh, with Ken Chaya. What was the article about? It might have been about migration patterns. Yeah. Okay. Purim Negla readings and Purim Star Wars. Celebrate Purim with Sag Harbor's Temple Adas Israel this Thursday. Uh, student Art Festival. Uh oh, has it ended? Minari screenings. I saw that last night and cried so much. Um. Need to set chocolate. Pastries, ramen, and hints of new restaurants. Uh, Art of Eating welcomes back Eat Hampton, a socially appropriate drive through supper club. So, fast food. The Comfort Club will be available to order for 27.50 Thursday nights. New classic meatloaf. Or organic butter fried love. Buttermilk fried chicken? Gross. No thanks. Um, Hampton Domestics. We have many domestic and corporate positions available. Estate managers, private chefs, executive housekeepers, butlers, housemen, household managers, drivers, housekeepers, cooks, nannies, corporate. Maybe I could apply for a job um, as a as a housewoman. <laughs> um, what if they make you like crawl on all fours though? Personal assisting, that's so boring. Al Anon's invitation to you. We invite you to try our program. You can have a better life, free of anxiety, fear, and desperation. But what kind of a life would that be? It would be an extremely boring life. Let's see. Summer rentals. Quiet cul-de-sac near village, Southampton. Eighty thousand a month. Hmm. Or Southampton Village near ocean, a short jaunt to beach. Three bedroom, three bath, one hundred twenty-five thousand. Uh. Thanks. Oh, or Sag Harbor Village. Historic village home, water view, females seeking same for guest room, fifteen seventy five per month. I could maybe do that. I mean, I really, d- I have no idea what I'm going to do this year. I usually don't even have like so called summer plans because I never have you know 
annual plans. Okay. Thank you, Dan's Papers. Moving on to New York Times Magazine. I can't believe people read this shit every day. Stephen Yuan. Taiwanese and ethnicity born to undocumented and unwed parents in California, then privately adopted. I have experienced both the privilege and freedoms of being American, and the oppression of feeling both unseen and that your identity exists only through another's gaze. This piece articulately told the story of intergenerational trauma without naming it. For those trying to bridge the gap by creating art or any act of kindness, do not stop crying. Uh, trying. <laughs> Freudian slope. I moved to New York City at 21, trying to prove my worth through how much I earned, not yet knowing I'd never be able to afford my entire life without benefiting from someone else's oppression. The writer quietly names how Asian American immigrants have often successfully made it through the dominant predatory culture of greed and capitalism. Is this addiction to a six-figure education watches, two-car garages, celebrity, etc., shortchanging our real pursuit of freedom in identity? Amelia Leewert. Leewert. That is a hard-hitting question, and... I don't know how to answer it because I love um, having the freedom of both time and money and like being able to dress well. Um, so whatever, YOLO, Amelia. <laughs> what an incredible moving piece of writing. I am a first generation immigrant and a parent to kids who were born in America. You have blah, blah, blah. Okay. I'm tired of reading out loud. As you can hear, my throat is getting scratchy. Uh, Hartford Courant. Senators push to mandate Asian American studies in Connecticut public schools amid surge of racist attacks by Susan Dunn. A bill currently in the State General Assembly would mandate that public schools offer elective courses. Elective, that's an outrage. Should be required in all 50 states. Anyway, in Asian Pacific American Studies. Connecticut Asian leaders say that such curriculum is, such a curriculum is both overdue and timely, as discrimination against Asian Americans have spiked nationwide during the coronavirus pandemic. If you look at the Chinese Exclusion Act, Japanese internment, if policies like that were made today, everyone would be shocked that we as a country allowed this to happen. It is important to have those conversations, said Senator Saud Anwar, one of the four legislators who introduced the SB 678 in January to the education committee. The 
bipartisan bill also introduced by Senate Democrats Derek Slapp and Kathy Austin and Republican Tony Huang asks that Section 1016B of the General Statutes be amended to include Asian American studies as part of the social studies curriculum. Mm, Hostility towards Asian Americans has risen nationwide in the wake of COVID-19 health crisis. Um, Early in the pandemic, we had a complaint from Stanford from an Asian American woman who had been in the country 30 years. She was at a supermarket. A supermarket checkout clerk allegedly sprayed her with Lysol in front of everyone. It wasn't a subtle act. Not only was that deeply embarrassing, but it was an assault on her. She breathed in these noxious fumes. This person attacked her, Tung said. Mm. Anwar says incidents such as this heighten the need to expose students to Asian American history. Hell yeah! I didn't even learn any (laughs) all throughout my education in America, which goes to show the poor quality of what I was exposed to. Uh, When I interact with the Asian American community in our state, there is fear and concern. Some had people make remarks in front of them and say inappropriate things. You're causing the infestation to spread or something to that effect, Anwar said. We need to use education as the first tool to help people be inclusive and respectful. According to the most recent statistics from the U.S. Census, about 5% of the state's population is of Asian descent. These include people who identify as Japanese, Indian, Bangladeshi, Bhutanese, Burmese, Cambodian, etc. Uh, Histories of migration, war, colonialism, labor and struggles for justice, cultures of food, art, dress, religion, and language, and politics of gender, sexuality, caste, nationality, as well as sovereignty. Uh, Few know anything. Most people have never seen themselves represented in a high school curriculum. Occasionally, someone will say they took one unit on the Japanese-American internment during World War II. Or they might say, I went on vacation to Vietnam and came back and learned about refugees. Chong said if he were to develop a public school curriculum on Asian American studies, he would include analyses of racist ideologies that led to exclusionary immigration laws and oppressive policies, as well as an overview of the immigrant experience and how Asian Americans have contributed to all levels of society. Tong came from one of those struggling immigrant communities. The first native-born American in his family, he was raised in Hartford by parents who worked seven days a week, 15 hours a day, operating a Chinese restaurant. Tong said he felt different and invisible while a student in West Hartford public schools.
It's a story of hardship and suffering and opportunity and perseverance, all at the same time, he said. I think it would be an incredible opportunity to just to not just teach facts and histories and dates, but also values. House of Bourbon. The House of Bourbon is a European dynasty of French origin, a branch of the Capetian dynasty, the royal house of France. Bourbon kings first ruled France and Navarre in the 16th century. By the 18th century, members of the Spanish Bourbon dynasty held thrones in Spain, Naples, Sicily, and Parma. Spain and Luxembourg have monarchs of the House of Bourbon. Country, France, Spain, Luxembourg, Two Sicilies, Parma, Portugal. Founded 1272. Founder, Robert Count of Clermont, the sixth son of King Louis IX of France, married Beatrix of Bourbon. Current head, Louise Alphonse, Duke of Anjou. Final ruler, France and Navarre, Charles X um, of the French, Louis-Philippe I, Parma, Roberto I, two Sicilies, Francis II. Titles, King of France and Navarre, King of Spain, King of the Two Sicilies, King of Poland, Grand Duke of Lithuania, Grand Duke of Luxembourg, Dauphin of France, Duke of Bourbon, Duke of Calabria, Duke of Vendôme, Duke of Orléans, Duke of Anjou, Duke of Berry, Duke of Alençon, Duke of Angoulême, Duke of Parma, Duke of Lucca, Prince of Condé, Prince of Conti, Count of La Marche, Count of Soissons, Count of Provence, Count of Artois, Count of Barcelona. Mm, deposition, France, uh, 1830 July Revolution, 1848 February Revolution, Parma, 1859 Annexation by Kingdom of Sardinia, Two Sicilies, 1861, Italian Unification. The Royal Bourbons originated in 1272 when the youngest son of King Louis IX married the heiress of the Lordship of Bourbon. The house continued for three centuries as a cadet branch, serving as nobles under the direct Capetian and Voila kings. The senior line of the House of Bourbon became extinct in the male line in 1527 with the death of Charles III, Duke of Bourbon. This made the junior Bourbon Vendôme branch the genealogically senior branch of the House of Bourbon. In 1589, at the death of Henry III of France, the House of Valois became extinct in the male line.
Um, under the Salic Law, the head of the House of Bourbon, as the senior representative of the senior surviving branch of the Caputian dynasty, became King of France as Henry IV. Bourbon monarchs then united to France the small kingdom of Navarre, which Henry's father had acquired by marriage in 1555, ruling both until the 1792 overthrow of the monarchy during the French Revolution. Restored briefly in 1814 and definitively in 1815, after the fall of the First French Empire, the senior line of the Bourbons was finally overthrown in the July Revolution of 1830. A cadet Bourbon branch, the House of Orléans, then ruled for 18 years, 1830-1848, until it too was overthrown. Etc. Etc. Blah, blah, blah. Um, the three dynasties of Bourbon. The first were the Lords of Bourbon, who died out by the males in 1171, then by the women in 1216. Their coat of arms are Dor au Lion de Gaulle et Alors Duit Coquille d'Azur, Nicolas Louis Enchant. Genealogical and Chronological History of the Royal House of Bourbon, Volume 1, Edition Dido, 1825, page 45. And then, First House of Bourbon, Second House of Bourbon, Third and Current House of Bourbon... Oh my god, that's a really long um, family tree. Okay. Origins. The pre-Capetian House of Bourbon was a noble family, dating at least from the beginning of the 13th century, when the estate of Bourbon was ruled by the Sire de Bourbon, who was a vassal of the King of France. Okay. Bourbons of Spain and Italy. Later Bourbon monarchs outside France. Coat of arms of the Royal House of Bourbon, two Sicilies. Coat of arms of the House of Bourbon, Parma. Upon the fall of the French Empire, Ferdinand I was restored to the throne of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies in 1815, founding the House of Bourbon Two Sicilies. His subjects revolted in 1820, oh, that was only five years, and he was forced to grant a constitution. Austria invaded in March 1821 and revoked the constitution. Yikes! He was succeeded by his son, Francis I, in 1825, and by his grandson, Ferdinand II, in 1830. 
Um, another revolution erupted in January 1848, and Ferdinand was also forced to grant a constitution, which was revoked in 1849. Ferdinand was succeeded by his son Francis II in May 1859. When Giuseppe Garibaldi captured Naples in 1860, Francis restored the constitution in an attempt to save his sovereignty. He fled to the fortress of Gaeta, which was captured by the Piedmontese troops in February 1861. His kingdom was incorporated into the Kingdom of Italy on 17th March. 1861, after the fall of the fortress of Messina. The Kingdom of the Two Sicilies was a kingdom located in southern Italy from 1816 to 1860. The kingdom was the largest sovereign state by population and size in Italy prior to Italian unification. Comprising Sicily and all of the peninsula of Sicily, south of the Papal States, covering most of the area of today's Mezzogiorno. Capital Palermo, eighteen sixteen to eighteen seventeen, Naples, eighteen seventeen to eighteen sixty one. Common languages Italian and Latin in use. Uh, Neapolitan and Sicilian. Government, absolute monarchy, 1816 to 1848. Constitutional monarchy, 1849-1861. The kingdom was formed when the kingdom of Sicily merged with the kingdom of Naples, which is officially known as the kingdom of Sicily. Since both kingdoms were named Sicily, <laughs> they were collectively known as Two Sicilies, Ultraque Sicilia, uh, literally both Sicilies. Ultraque, Ultraque. And the unified kingdom adopted this name. The king of the Two Sicilies was overthrown by Giuseppe Garibaldi in 1860 after which the people supposedly voted in a plebiscite to join the Savoyard Kingdom of Sardinia. The annexation of the Kingdom of Two Sicilies completed the first phase of Italian unification, and the new Kingdom of Italy was proclaimed in 1861. The Two Sicilies were heavily agricultural, like the, two other, like the other Italian states. Origin of the Two Kingdoms In 1130, the Norman king Roger II formed the Kingdom of Sicily by combining the county of Sicily with the southern part of the Italian peninsula, then known as the Duchy of Apulia and Calabria, as well as with the Maltese islands. The capital of this kingdom was Palermo, which is on the island of Sicily. During the reign of Charles I of Anjou, 1266-1285, um, the War of the Sicilian Vespers, 
1282-1302 split the kingdom. Charles, who was of French origin, lost the island of Sicily to the house of Barcelona, who were from Aragon and Catalan. Charles remained king of the peninsula region, which became informally known as the Kingdom of Naples. Officially, Charles never gave up the title of the Kingdom of Sicily, thus there existed two separate kingdoms calling themselves Sicily. Mm. Only with the peace of the Calta Bellotta, Calta Bellotta, 1302, sponsored by Pope Boniface VIII, did the two kings of Sicily recognize each other's legitimacy. In 1442, Alfonso V of Aragon, king of insular Sicily, conquered Naples and became king of both. Alfonso V called his kingdom in Latin Regnum Utriusque Siciliae, meaning Kingdom of Two Sicilies. Blah, 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 people fighting over wars, trees, broken treaties, more wars, um, arts patronage. The Teatro Reale di San Carlo, commissioned by the Bourbon King Charles VII of Naples, who wanted to grant Naples a new and larger theater uh, to replace the old, dilapidated, and too small Teatro San Bartolomeo of 1621. It had served the city well, especially after Scarlatti had moved there in 1682. Oh, I didn't know he was from the 1600s. <laughs> and had begun to create an important opera center, which existed well into the 1700s. From 1815 to 1822, Giacchino Rossini was the house composer and artistic director of the royal opera houses, including the San Carlo. During this period, he wrote ten operas, which were Elisabetta Regina d'Inglaterra, 1815, La Gazzetta Otello Ossia il Moro di Venezia, 1816, Armida, 1817, Mose in Egitto, Ricciardo e Zoraidi, 1818, Hermione Bianca e Faliero, Eduardo e Cristina, La Donna del Lago, 1819, Maometto Due, 1820, and Zalmira, 1822. Many premiered at the San Carlo. An offer in 1822 from Domenica Barbaja, the impresario of the San Carlo, which followed the composer's ninth opera, led to Gaetano Donizetti's move to Naples and his residency there, which lasted until the production of Caterina Cornaro in January 1844. 
In all, Naples presented 51 of Donizetti's operas. Also, Vincenzo Bellini's first professionally staged opera had its first performance at the Teatro di San Carlo in Naples on May 30th, 1826. In total, the population um, of Naples was around 7 million from 1827. Let's see. The kingdom had a large population, its capital, Naples, being the largest city in Italy, at least three times as large as any other contemporary Italian state. At its peak, the kingdom had a military 100,000 soldiers strong and a large bureaucracy. Naples was the largest city in the kingdom and the large, third largest city in Europe. The second largest city, Palermo, was the third largest in Italy. Kings of the Two Sicilies, Ferdinand I, 1816 to 1825, Francis I, 1825 to 1830, Ferdinand II, 1830 to 1859, Francis II, 1859, 1861 Oh, I wonder if... Hmm. Medici, Duke of Brabant, Tyrol, Jerusalem, Angevin, Naples. Stop this madness. New York Times angers Italians with smoky tomato carbonara recipe. Recipe using bacon and Parmesan cheese attracts ire of chefs, foodies, and farmers' association. By Angela Dufrida, Rome correspondent. The New York Times has cooked up a controversy in Italy after tinkering with the recipe for the classic Roman dish pasta carbonara. Called Smoky Tomato Carbonara, the recipe by Kei Chun was published by New York Times Cooking. To be fair to Chun, she did preface her version of the recipe by saying that tomatoes are not traditional in carbonara, but they lend a bright tang to the dish. 
But it wasn't just the tomatoes. The recipe re- replaced guanciale with bacon, since it's widely available and lends a nice smoky note. And used Parmesan cheese instead of pecorino. The indignation began among passionate foodies on social media. This isn't remotely close to being a carbonara. Stop this madness, wrote one, before attracting the ire of top Italian chefs and the Farmers Association, Coriretti, which described smoky tomato carbonara as the tip of the iceberg in the falsification of traditional Italian dishes. This isn't the first time an interpretation of an Italian recipe has sparked outrage, with foreigners often mocked for adding pineapple to pizza or chicken to pasta. Gross! (laughs) But that the recipe was published by the New York Times came as a shock. I follow the New York Times on Instagram and thought it was a fake Alessandro Pipero, a chef in Rome known as the Carbonara King, told Corriere della Sera. It would be like putting salami in a cappuccino or a mortadella in sushi. Okay, fine. But then let's not call it sushi. Similarly with this one, carbonara with tomato is not carbonara. It's something else. (laughs) Coldiretti was sterner in its reaction. The real risk, the association said in a statement, is that a fake made in Italy dish takes root in international cooking, removing the authentic dish from the market space and trivializing our local specialties, which originate from unique techniques and territories. Coriretti added that pasta carbonara was one of the most betrayed Italian recipes abroad, but the association is keeping track of plenty of others. Caprese is served with industrial cheese instead of mozzarella di bufala or fior di latte, while there are also cases of pasta with pesto served with almonds, walnuts, or pistachios instead of pine nuts. The New York Times also triggered outrage in the UK in 2018 after publishing a recipe in which it described the Yorkshire pudding, a roast dinner staple, as a large fluffy pancake that was excellent for breakfast, brunch, lunch, and dessert any time of the year. Princess Sickness, alternatively known as Princess Syndrome or Princess Disease, Gongju Bing, is a neologism used colloquially in East Asia to describe a condition of narcissism, egocentrism, and materialism in women, or princess behavior. Conversely, but less commonly, men with a similar outlook may be described as having prince sickness. It is speculated that the term originated with the rise of the four Asian tigers across Asia, in which rapid economic growth may have contributed to a corresponding rise in consumerist or materialistic attitudes, and upper classes investing heavily in their children, who might subsequently become accustomed to material wealth and domestic help. Hell yeah!
causes. In mainland China, Hong Kong, and Macau, Taiwan, low birth rates have meant that families often only have only children um, who are the sole focus of their parents' energies. In mainland China, the resultant phenomenon, often attributed to the former one-child policy, is known as Little Emperor Syndrome. A combination of helicopter parenting and presence of domestic workers, allowing middle-class parents to work, can contribute to their children being spoiled. A widening income gap in Hong Kong, along with concerns over democracy and social inequality, also reflects the perceived attitudes of the elite classes. Furthermore, social mobility in East Asia is primarily based on personal and academic achievement. For that reason, parents may place a great deal of academic pressure on both children and their teachers, micromanaging their child's academic career to achieve higher grades. Some suggest that this results in dependence or a lack of responsibility. New York Times Social Cues I was fine with being the breadwinner until 2020 came along. My husband pays for nothing and I'm starting to resent him. I was remarried two years ago to a caring and considerate man. He moved into my home with my two kids, who are now away at college. When he arrived, he subtly let me know that he didn't expect to pay any household expenses. I work part-time and have some family money, but I'm still on a budget. I didn't mind paying for everything until the pandemic hit. Now I've lost my job and my investments have taken a hit, so my finances are tight. I've brought up my situation several times, but my husband says things are tight for him too. Our incomes are about the same. I can't help feeling hurt and resentful. He knows this, but he does nothing. Any advice? Wife. I'm confused. Unless you left out a crucial detail. For example, your husband does all the cooking and cleaning, or performs most of the emotional labor in your relationship. The man you consider or describe as caring and considerate sounds like a freeloader. It's time for you to take it up a notch. When we live with other people, much less marry them, there's no room for subtlety about household expenses. The bills must be paid. It doesn't sound as if you've made a direct request of your husband, though. Stop hinting and tell him what you think a fair division of expenses would be. Then listen to his response. Now I can understand if he's reluctant to divide all the bills in half, You set up an infrastructure for two kids. He's not responsible for them. But there's no good argument for his paying nothing toward housing, food, and maintenance costs. An honest conversation should stop this gravy train, or at least reveal what your husband is thinking. You'll never solve this problem without knowing that. Half of Americans are effectively poor now. 
America's collapsing because it's the world's first poor rich country. There are days I feel like I read dystopian statistics for a living, and then there are days when the dystopian statistics take even my jaded breath away. Here's one. 43% of American households can't afford a budget that includes housing, food, childcare, healthcare, transportation, and a cell phone. Translation, nearly half of Americans can't afford the basics of life anymore. Does that take your breath away too? It should. And yet, it might not come as a surprise. You might know it intimately. The statistics say there's an even chance you're living it. What a grim and bizarre reality. Half of people are effectively poor in the world's richest country. The folks that did the study above call this new class of people Alice for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. It's a sharp way to think about American collapse. Let me translate this term too. The people formerly known as the American middle class. Let's take each of these terms one by one. Asset limited means that these households don't have the resources, the hard financial assets, to draw down on anymore. That tallies with other research which says the majority of Americans now have a negative net worth. In short, asset limited is a polite way of saying indebted for life with no real way of ever getting out of the trap. It's a nice way of saying broke. Why not? That brings me to the second idea in the term, income constrained. American incomes haven't risen for half a century, but the cost of living has exploded, skyrocketed, gone supernova. Healthcare and education didn't cost as much as a house in the 1970s, or even the 1980s. And houses didn't cost more than the average person would ever make in their lifetime. If asset limited is a polite way of saying broke and indebted, income constrained is a polite way of saying poor. There are two basic kinds of financial poverty after all, not having much of an income and not having any wealth saved up. Americans are poor in both ways now. That's because their incomes haven't risen to allow them to save, and their debts keep mounting, which eats up their meager incomes. Hence, another shocking stat. Most Americans now die in debt. Is this the 1300s? What do we call a population that live in and die in debt. We certainly don't call them free in real any real sense. They're the modern equivalent of serfs or peasants, who are born owing and who will die owing, a fictional, unplayable amount. Americans are something very much like neo-serfs, because of the last idea in the phrase Alice, employed. You see, it's not as if the average American is poor now, 
because he or she is sitting around playing video games all day. Quite the contrary. Americans are notoriously hardworking people, and that trend continues right down to this day. The side hustle has become an everyday feature of life. Americans aren't poor because they don't work. They don't work hard enough, or they don't work long enough. They're poor even if they do. In that sense, the final idea in the phrase Alice is underwhelming, inadequate. It fails to really get to the root of the problem here. If the majority of people in a rich society are poor now, even though they're employed, then clearly the problem isn't the people, it's the system. Now, you might object. Are Americans really becoming poor? What else would you call people that struggle to afford food, housing, childcare, and healthcare? You can't call them rich, and you can't call them middle class. They are poor in the sense that they are deprived of the basics of life, and deprivation is what poverty is. Even far poorer countries, I'd wager, don't have such dire outcomes. Bigger percentages can afford the basics, because medicine or rent or childcare in Pakistan or Nigeria doesn't cost so relatively much. Americans are indeed growing effectively poorer and poorer now, and it shows in their depression, stress, anger, rage, anxiety, falling longevity, and health, not to mention a classic turn towards authoritarianism. Poverty in America, in other words, has become endemic and ubiquitous because it's systemic and structural. It's baked into the system. It's a feature, not a bug. And most Americans these days, I'd wager, understand this intuitively. Work hard, play by the rules, become something, someone worthy. Be a teacher, engineer, writer, coach, therapist, nurse, etc. What do you get? You get your pension raided read stolen by hedge funds you get your income decimated by investment bankers you get charged a fortune for the very things you yourself are involved in producing <laughs> but never earn a sh fair share of hell yeah art world um you get preyed on in every which way the predatory can dream up but it's a new kind of poverty, too. Or at least one unseen since the Weimar Republic. It's the poverty of decline, degeneration, decay. It's the poverty of a middle class becoming a new poor. It's the reversal of an upwards trajectory, not the failure to launch. It's people who expected to live better and better lives, finding themselves in the grim, unfamiliar predicament of never being able to reach them, no matter what they do. Except maybe sell out and become one of the predators. What happens when that takes place? Something strange, difficult, 
paradoxical and backwards. If I say to the average American, Hey, I know you're poor. Listen, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm trying to help you. I know it. The statistics tell me so. I can see it on your stressed out, depressed face. I can see it in everything about you now. What will the average American say? Well, he or she will respond defensively, probably. Hey, go to hell, buddy. I'm not poor. That's understandable. Nobody likes to be called poor, and especially not Americans. Because living in a hyper-capitalist society, poverty is stigmatized, scorned, mocked, and hated. To call an American poor is something like calling a Soviet a bad Communist Party member, or maybe even a capitalist. Comrade, to the gulag with you. I get it. But it's not helping anyone to pretend Americans are rich now when in fact they're poor. The difficult truths are these. The majority of Americans, or near enough, are effectively poor now. America is the world's poor, rich country, and no progress whatsoever can be made until enough of them are willing to admit it. Think about it. If Americans go on playing this strange and silly game of pretending to be rich when they're poor, then what reason is there to address any of the obvious and fatal failures at the heart of American life anymore? If you're rich and fortunate, why do you need public health care childcare, or retirement. And yet, without these things, Americans will only ever get poorer. There's a place where pride becomes hubris, where stoicism becomes vanity, where self-reliance becomes ignorance of the common good. Americans are at that place right now, in this moment. American poverty, a middle class falling into ruin, the majority of people now effectively poor, is what gave rise to today's problems. Trumpism, extremism, fascism, theocracy. It's what drives religious fervor. Save me, someone. It's what ignites the spark of racial hatred all over again. And until and unless this problem is addressed, my friends, in a tough and gentle and sane way, America is going to stay where it is. People that really understand political economy have a saying, (coughs) capitalism implodes into fascism. That's because it produces mass poverty, not riches, decline, not upward mobility, and the new poor (coughs) then turn on everyone. Neighbors, friends, allies, values, morals. If that sounds eerily like America today, then you should be able to see America tomorrow, too. Someone needs to say it, and it needs to be said with gentle understanding, real empathy, uncompromising truth, and genuine compassion. America is effectively a poor country now. Not a poor country like poor countries, but a poor country of its own kind. A poor, rich country. 
a rich country where the average person lives like a poor person. That single fact is at the heart of American collapse, and it's not okay. I won't hatch. Oh, I am a chickie who lives in an egg, but I will not hatch, I will not hatch. The hens, they all cackle, the roosters all beg, but I will not hatch, I will not hatch. For I hear all the talk of pollution and war, as the people all shout and the airplanes roar. So I'm staying in here where it's safe and it's warm, and I will not hatch. No words exchanged before man stabbed and back in Chinatown. Uh, police are investigating after a man was stabbed in the back in Chinatown on Thursday night. The incident was reported just before 6.30 p.m. near Baxter and Worth streets. No words were exchanged between the victim and the suspect. The suspect took off running after the attack. Bystanders came to the aid of the victim. The 36-year-old victim, who was Asian, was taken to the hospital. The victim had to undergo surgery, and officials say his condition is deteriorating. The Asian Hate Crime Task Force has been called in to assist in the investigation. Currently, there was no evidence of a hate crime. That's bullshit. Come on. Sources say a person of interest walked into the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and turned himself in to police. Community members say they were outraged and angry after the latest attack on an Asian New Yorker. Mayor Bill de Blasio and other officials spoke out earlier this week about the city's renewed effort to confront hate crimes against Asians. Every community suffered, but there's been a particular pain, a particular horrible challenge faced by the Asian American community, de Blasio said, because on top of it all, or on top of all the suffering from the coronavirus itself, on top of losing loved ones, losing businesses, uh, people have had to confront horrible discrimination and hatred. The Asian Hate Crime Task Force is focusing on the entire city, but they will pay particular attention to the subways after a rash of incident in the transit system. Community leaders say the incident is just another reason why the task force should be funded and staffed with full-time officers. You need to be able to give them the resources that they need to help focus on solving the problem, community advocate Jenny Lowe said. I believe they have, a, they have very good officers who are well-trained to do that. But a volunteer gig is still a volunteer gig. Why do giraffes only live for 25 years, but elephants live up to 70 years, even though they both share similar diets? size, and live in the same parts of the world. Okay, let me introduce you to R versus K selection. 
All living creatures have to have babies to pass their traits on to the next generation to ensure that their species survive. But there's two general strategies, R and K. R selection are the creatures that have many offspring at once. Think of insects or fish. They have lots of babies and most of these babies will die. They put very little effort into raising these young. Basically, they reach sexual maturity early, have a hundred or more babies at a time, and sometimes die soon after, leaving room for their offspring to take their place. Think of salmon spawning in a river, then dying. Think of insects, which typically have one large clutch of eggs, then die soon after. These species are short-lived, but just spew out their offspring, most of whom will die. If ever there's a favorable change in the environment, more of their offspring will survive and can very quickly take over. If the environment changes for the worst, they had hundreds of offspring, one or two might make it. K-selected have fewer offspring. They devote a lot of attention to these offspring, investing a lot of time and effort into teaching them how to survive. Their plan is to have fewer offspring, but invest a lot of effort into protecting and teaching their offspring so that most will survive. Because the parents need to invest so much effort into raising their young, the parents have to be long-lived to allow time for them to pass on their knowledge and provide protection. Think of humans whose offspring are completely helpless for the first two years or so and are not ready to take care of themselves until they are teenagers. Um, elephants are highly K-selected. It takes a lot of effort to raise a young elephant, so they don't reach sexual maturity before they are teenagers. When they become pregnant, it's 22 months, almost two years before they give birth. They only give birth to a single offspring. This offspring is dependent on its mother for at least five years and up to 10 years. A baby elephant nurses for at least two years. It can't survive without its mother's milk, and if orphaned before this, will die of starvation. After giving birth, the mother will not be able to get pregnant again for at least four years, so their first child will be almost six years old before there is a chance. Okay, I'm bored. <laughs> Texas mayor resigns after telling residents desperate for power and heat, only the strong will survive. <laughs> A Texas mayor resigned after seemingly telling residents to fend for themselves in a Facebook post amid a deadly and record-breaking winter storm that left much of the state without power Tuesday. As then-mayor of Colorado City, Tim Boyd wrote an insensitive message people desperate for heat, water, and power, um, saying only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. <laughs> no one owes you or your family anything, nor is it 
um, the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like these. Sink or swim, it's your choice. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. Um... If you don't have electricity, you step up and come up with a game plan <laughs> to keep your family warm and safe. If you have no water, you deal without and think outside the box to survive and supply water to your family. If you are sitting at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for someone to come rescue you because you're, you're lazy is direct result of your raising, only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Folks, God has given us the tools to support ourselves in times like these. This is sadly a product of a socialist government where they feed people to believe that the few will work and others will become dependent for handouts. Am I sorry that you have been dealing without electricity and water? Yes. But I'll be damned if I'm going to provide for anyone that is capable of doing it themselves. <laughs> we have lost sight of those in need, and those that take advantage of the system and mesh them into one group. Bottom line, quit crying and looking for a handout. Get off your ass and take care of your own family. Tim Boyd, February 16th, 2021, from Houston, Texas. Boyd then wrote, I would never want to hurt the elderly or anyone that is in true need of help to be left to fend for themselves. I was only making the statement that those folks that are too lazy to get up and fend for themselves are, but are capable should not be dealt a handout. I apologize for the wording and some of the phrases that were used. Boyd said his wife was fired after his comments and that he wasn't speaking as an official of Colorado City or the county where it sits, Mitchell County. He added that he had not signed up to run again for mayor earlier this month. At least 17 people are dead and almost 3 million homes and businesses are still without power in Texas on Wednesday morning after this week's major winter storm. Some of the coldest temperatures in decades hit the Lone Star State, resulting in water restrictions because of burst pipes and a lack of electricity at treatment plants. While water and power are being restored, the weather prompted many residents to step up for each other. 